Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian, online training and nutrition coach, and owner of James Roberts Fitness. You can find more of my content by going to my website, fitamputee.co.uk. But before we get started with today's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners. And if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And on today's show, I've got Drew Tadia. Drew travelled the world as a professional athlete coming from Canada, through the US and overseas into Australia and Germany following his dream and passion of baseball. He quickly became the go-to guy regarding fitness and nutrition as he continued experimenting on his own body to find out what foods would help recover quicker and to build muscle more efficiently. How to exercise that would help him jump higher, run faster and help him stand out on the field. So welcome on to the show, Drew. Thank you so much for having me, James. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you and chop it up with your audience here. This is going to be awesome. It's my pleasure. So before we delve into today's topic, Drew, can you talk to my audience about what was kind of the driving factor to getting into baseball, first of all, and kind of how it allowed you to transverse the world? I suppose that for me, that was a it was a childhood goal or dream of mine. I woke up, or sorry, I kind of grew up playing sports. I was I loved any kind of sports. So I was always playing, and I feel like it was a bit different a number of years ago, where after school, like we would play outside until the sun went down. And I feel like more and more parks are empty, and kids are more used to playing on their phones or electronics and. It's, it's a bit sad, but that's the world I grew up in. All the neighborhood kids would play at the park for as long as possible, and then we would pretend to be our favorite professional athlete, and that's what we did, and I kind of grew up with that mindset of playing and enjoying it, and I loved it, and I knew that was something I wanted to do for my life. It was just it was so super easy because you're a kid. Like Who doesn't want to play a kid's game? I suppose maybe lots of people, but... <laughs> Uh, this, uh, who, who wouldn't want to play a kid's game as an adult? And that was really my driving passion. It was something I wanted to do for my entire life. And when I got closer to that dream and that goal, it would just fuel that fire deep within that really pushed me to get to the next level. But Drew, being a Canadian yourself, what what was the kind of the 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 drive towards going to what quote unquote is America's game? <laughs> I suppose it wasn't well, – I really played every sport, and I got to a point where I really had to decide what direction I wanted to go. So, for example, I played fo- football in high school. I was the, one of the better players. I was the captain of the football team. We played – we won several – or we won two or three city championships. Then I went to – I played basketball, and, we, for the, and I was the captain of the basketball team. So we moved on to – the provincial championship for the first time in like 15 years. So we found success in different areas. Then baseball is the same difference. I was the captain of the baseball team. We won back-to-back city championships there. And it was time to move on to college. I was done high school and I had to move on somewhere. And I wasn't, I mean, I was good enough to play in high school, especially in Canada, like basketball. It's much different than the U.S. or maybe even 
other areas. And football is quite a bit different as well. I, so my decision would have been between football and baseball. I loved them all equally. I just knew I wanted to play collegiate sports. I knew I wanted to play, give it a shot at playing professional sports. And baseball is pretty much my best chance at playing at a higher level. And I didn't love it that much more until I really surrounded myself with everything around baseball. I loved everything about it once I started to play it basically every single day. And when I was reading your bio, when when you say the likes of obviously overseas and playing in Australia and um, playing in Australia and Germany, it was it surprised me a little bit because you don't associate the sport of baseball to be outside the likes of Canada, the U.S., and obviously the Caribbean and and also the South Americas. So, how big is the game in those two countries? Yeah, that's a great question. I get that all the time. Like they have baseball in Australia or baseball in Germany. It was baseball. It's actually in Australia, for example, they actually bring over a number of professional athletes to like professional baseball players affiliated with major league teams to go and play there and train because of the weather and also because it's a, a great place to kind of practice, hone your skills and play during the off season because their seasons are opposite to North America here. So when we have summer, they have winter and when we have, we have winter, they have summer. So they can basically play all year all year round. And they so they have a growing type of atmosphere. It's very probably both like I could associate like Canadian sports or baseball in particular to the same as Australia or in Germany like we have really good raw talent for example, but down in the U.S., they were they play all year round, and they have coaches that have played at the professional level. So for me, I grew up in Canada. We played 16 games in a season, and like if I told someone that in the U.S., they would they would say that's not even a season, like that's a practice. So my first year, I moved down to the to the U.S. and I started playing with these guys. There, our spring season, our our spring season, our spring training was 30 some games. And that's not even the real season. <laughs> so I kind of showed up, and I and I was very raw. I had raw skills. I did. I had a little bit of talent, but it was really the hard work, the determination, and passion that got me to the next level. Because I wasn't good enough to play when I got there, and that was clear as soon as I stepped on the field. And it just took that. I had to show up. I had to be the first one there. I had to be the last one to leave. I had to learn how to work out properly. I had to learn how to nutritionize properly with food. And that was the only way I could play or compete at that level with those guys that have been playing all year round their whole lives. And here I show up, and I was like, it was such an eye-opening experience. When I look back, I really feel like I had no business being there competing with these guys. Andrew, when you were playing in the U.S., what kind of standard of level was it? Double A, triple A? It was affiliated. So, uh, so we call it not not affiliated. Sorry, we call it independent leagues. So independent leagues are not affiliated with the team like the Los Angeles Dodgers, for example. So the Dodgers would have a rookie league, single A, double A, and then they would move up in those ranks. We played a professional ball that wasn't affiliated. So some guys would go from our league to a professional league, or they might get drafted or signed. But I was never signed growing up as uh, in Canada. It was pretty difficult 20 years ago to be signed as a Canadian. It's happening more and more now. 
but we only had a few guys like Larry Walker, for example, who was who was someone that is a Canadian playing in the professional leagues. Like it just there's only a few hand like a, a small handful of Canadian professional baseball players. Now it's more and more, which is amazing, but it was quite a bit more difficult back then. But does it make it more difficult as a Canadian baseball player when you only got the likes of the Toronto Blue Jays and the Montreal Expos in the back in the day? to be able to aspire to i think so sure we i mean we had we of course we had television and we got a chance to play we watched uh we always got the toronto games but we got other games as well we didn't get a ton of people ask me for example they're like what's your what was your favorite football team and i say the dallas cowboys and then everyone's like uh dallas but that's all we got because they were so good like when I was growing up in the early 90s, it was Dallas and San Francisco. They're the best teams. So, of course, they televised them all the time. So those are the games I got. We only got a couple games. So for us, we got Toronto and we got Seattle games because those are the closest to us. And uh, we got a couple other games, but it probably was a bit more challenging. Like I didn't grow up in a city like I'm in L.A. right now, and I didn't grow up with a team like the Los Angeles Dodgers. Like the Dodger fans, they love like the L.A. Dodger fans. They're the best fans in the world. Like. They have the most people that come to their stadium every year. They love, they live and breathe Dodgers. And uh, it's just, I didn't have that opportunity. So I think it would be a bit more challenging to answer your question. And kind of what was the, uh, we touched upon it a little bit in, in in the intro about obviously you being the go-to guy when it came to fitness and nutrition. What You, you, you kind of pinpointed it to the early start of your career within the U.S., but why did it come time to you kind of using your body as kind of, well, quote-unquote, a guinea pig? What was kind of the driving factor behind that? I pretty much had to. Like, early on in my career, I basically showed up. I was 165 pounds. I was just this little skinny kid that wanted to play. And I didn't care where it was or what I was doing. I just said, put me on the field, and I'm going to make it happen. And... I quickly found out I wasn't that good. Like I didn't have the raw talent to be there or to play or compete. So I had to find different ways. I had to find an angle. I had to find an edge. And that just came from my passion. Like I knew I wasn't as good as that guy. So I had to sit in the cages and take 500 more rounds than he did. And I knew that I was this little skinny kid. When I look around everywhere else, I knew I had to gain some weight and muscle mass. So I would read magazines. I would sit there in the gym. I would find out ways to that I could build muscle mass or that I could recover quicker. And uh, that was something that I had to do to be there, to, to play and compete. And then as I, I mean, that's be, that became what I did because I had to, to play. And then people started coming to me. They said, what, what can I do? Because they saw my progress so quickly. They said, what can I do to gain some muscle mass? What can I do to work my quick twitch muscles, for example, or get faster? Um, and then it was the same thing with, with different areas of, of what I was doing, people, the higher I got, the more people basically came to me and said, what what kind of meals do I need to create? Because they know I was in the kitchen or I would be the one bringing my lunch bag while they would be going to McDonald's. And they're like, well, what is all that good food? So people basically just started to ask me more and more. And, then, and that's when I started to create programs. When I was creating programs for myself, I'd create programs for my teammates. And when I would make meal plans for myself, I'd make them for my teammates. So that just or naturally, organically transitioned to what I do now as a profession. And obviously, because you were coming in so raw, 
what was it, was it quite a stressful environment to start with? Because obviously you you don't know whether or not you're going to be cut or not. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was probably. I mean, it was so challenging. And people say, "What happened? Like, why aren't you playing? Like, I could keep playing right now. Like, I could, I could still be in it, and grinding it out every day." But it was—it's just a tough lifestyle. So you get a phone call and you drive across the country. Like, I was in Los Angeles training. I was training three times a day. You can imagine that was just my drive. And then I got a call from Texas and said, "Hey, we got a—we got a position for you. Pack up your bags." So I literally packed up my bags and drove 30 hours to and played the next day and that was that was how it worked and the same thing with australia i got a call i said you want to come to australia and play sure i jumped off the plane and, and i played that next day i played that same day so and, and to live out of a suitcase and to to grind every day with the competition and uh, it was a part like i loved a part of it without question that was that was something that i did and but I think when you take a step back and you realize like it was 10 years that I traveled, like 10 years of every single day was looking for a new job or a new contract, uh, competing with five or six guys at the same position, looking for other places to play. It was just a lot. It was a lot to deal with. And then you're so you're on a bus. You're on, someone else is always telling you what to do, when to sleep, what to eat. And then I took a break. And one of my, I was going back to back to back, I should mention. So I was traveling all over the U.S. And then I went to play in, I played in a winter league in the U.S. and Arizona. Then I went to Australia and then I went to Germany. So I didn't have any breaks. It just went to season to season to season. And usually people take a number of months off. Um, and so anyways, I ended up taking a little break. And I thought one of my contracts fell through, didn't work out the last minute. So I said, I'm going to start running this fitness. I'm going to start running this fitness business because everyone's asking me these questions. So I'll run some personal training or some fitness classes in the park. And then it was it was just like a relief. I felt like I was carrying all this weight on my shoulders for, for years. And I had this relief of I don't have to compete, compete today or I don't have to. I'm not stressed out about worrying about a job or where I'm going to sleep or who's going to take my position from me. And uh, that kind of tra- – that was like the beginning of transitioning into a business as a career. And do you think – and you, you mentioned this in your bio – that uh, going towards a plant-based diet helped you to kind of reduce your stress. Do you think that's uh, one of the factors that's made it a little bit easier into that transition? Yeah, I think plant-based. That for me was just it was just the research that I was doing, and and I would when you asked me if I was I was basically experimenting on my own body. So at one point in my career, like I, I grew up in this what they call the steroid era. So it was Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, these guys that looked like bodybuilders. They played baseball, so we thought that that's what we had to do. So I had a t- tackle box full of. Uh, supplements. My shells were stocked full of protein powders. And I was about 210, 215 pounds, just a large, like I walk right now, I walk around at 185 and I can't even, I can't even um, picture myself being that heavy, that big. And uh, that's what we thought that we had to do to be a a good athlete. And then I, and then I realized that I, I didn't sleep very well. Like I never really slept very well. I was very nasally, I was I couldn't move like I would reach up and try to try to move the weights or change the bar and I I was very inflexible I couldn't move very well so I started to read the ingredients on protein supplements and I was like what like what is this stuff so then I would read an ingredient and then go research it 
And I was like, how could they put this product, if that's what they use for a cement mix, how do they put that in in a protein supplement? And, and I imagine when you change things chemically, it doesn't do the same thing. But still, we shouldn't be putting those things in our bodies. So I just slowly transitioned away from those conventional supplements. I slowly transitioned away from big chunks of meat like that are hard to digest, for example. Like they tell you to eat as much protein as possible, but they don't tell you your body can't process it or that you, you have digestion issues because of all the protein you're stuffing in your body, regardless of what quality, what quality it is. So I just worked closer to the things that made my body feel better, the things that made me feel stronger, quicker, faster. And as I started to move away from being as big as possible, I became uh, I became a better athlete, and I became and I began uh, to get better and move up the ranks a lot quicker. And that was basically from a plant based diet. But then also, Drew, I guess with moving away from the baseball side of things and moving over to fitness, your quality of sleep probably improved as well. Absolutely, and you're not like you're not in a a, a crummy um, fifty dollar a night hotel room. You're not trying to sleep like we would like try to sleep on the floor of this bus that we're crammed in. We're crammed in there like sardines. So every once in a while, you like try to crawl in on the floor. <laughs> Literally, I'm telling you, people think that it's like a glamorous lifestyle, and it's not. <laughs> it's the furthest thing from it. So the the sleeping conditions were challenging, and we would be sometimes there'd be two of us in a bed and four people in a room, and that's what they did. They didn't really they treated you like a number. If you didn't like that lifestyle, if you didn't like dealing with the way that how it worked, then they'll find someone else to fill your spot. So it was definitely much easier and much more relaxing once you have a bed where you know you're going to sleep that evening and where your stuff is. And there was just there's just a lot of benefits, I suppose, after traveling for basically 10 years to stop, relax, take some deep, deep breaths and be like, wow, this is actually nice to to not be always on the go. But coming back on that baseball front that you, you mentioned, do you think the movies such as Durham Bulls kind of opened the eyes of the public to say, well, this is the uh, minor leagues of baseball. This is kind of the, the hardship some of the players have to overcome. Sorry, what was the question about that? Do you think the movie, the Durham Bulls, kind of opened the eyes of the public so they could kind of see what uh, the players in the minor leagues have to deal with well, on a day-to-day basis, really? Yeah, maybe. I mean, that's a great movie. You, you've watched it. Mm-hmm. Every baseball player has watched it. It's it's uh, it's a classic. And uh, if any of your listeners haven't watched it and are baseball fans, I'd highly recommend it. it. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Like that's probably more realistic than what we think of traveling and, and playing. And, and you know what? Even at the top level, it's not a whole lot different. I mean, they have probably have nicer hotel rooms and they have nicer transportation, but they're on the road every day. They're away from friends and family. And they're they're in the struggle, they're in the grind of having to produce, they have to show up every day, and they play so many games. So there's a lot of stress in different ways, but I think, coming back to your question, I think that's, that's a great movie to show what actually happens and what it's like instead of, I think a lot of people just see the glamour, the glamour or as much money as people get paid, but a small percentage of baseball players get paid as much as the guys do on TV. There's thousands and thousands of people playing in college levels, playing in low-level affiliated ball or independent ball. But I think, and, and, and probably this is probably sidetracking a little bit now, Drew, it's kind of getting overshadowed by the likes of the NBA because with 
it becoming like headline news, even the regular season for we'll call the the elite level of baseball be the uh, the M- M- MLB is kind of not important as it you want as it once was. Right. Well, I think there's just so many games like for the average for the average person trying to keep up with all the games like they play almost every single day. It, it's madness to think. So not someone's not going to sit there and watch. They might watch the highlights. That's what we're doing. Like they're trying to speed up the game a bit, but even, like there's a lot of games in basketball, for example. But that's way easier to track because the games are sh- are shorter. For example, you're not going to sit there and watch it for three and a half hours. Like we, last night, I went to a Dodger game and went into extra innings, which was awesome because we were at the game. It was like bonus. But I mean, to, you're not going to go to a game every day because they're always playing. So it's, it's probably a bit. It's a bit more challenging. I think a lot of people that I know that are baseball fans usually watch. A couple weeks up to the playoffs, and then they watch the playoffs and the World Series, and that's it. But is that because of the longevity of the season? And it's you—you you could say, "Well, there's only going to be a handful of teams at the end anyway. So why? Well, not say why bother, but why be like you say? You—you you wouldn't even have a chance to watch every single game. But why do you think that is? Because well, how would I put? I put it a different way. Because it was once was once was America's game. Why do you think it, people are kind of uh, going away from that? Do you think it's coming down to like we uh, uh, mentioned earlier in the episode about people's attention spans? Yeah, I think that it's. I think it's society. Like we don't want like it, for us like baseball players or baseball like true baseball fans. I think it's the history of like. Things like Honus Wagner or like Ty Cobb or everyone knows Babe Ruth, like the things that they were able to accomplish with basically nothing or Ted Williams, for example, you have guys that went to fight in war (laughs) and then would come back and play a game, for example, like the history is incredible, but I don't think we're in that era anymore. We're not like kids or our younger generations. They don't care about that stuff. Like we, we love baseball because of the history of it, because of the, of how it's transitioned over the years. And now it's like, even baseball is like, how do we speed it up so we can keep their attention spent? And, um, what else are they doing? Like, it's just very challenging. Like we have, we want, we want, instant access we want quick results we want text messages we want microwaves we want drive-throughs we don't want to sit there and have a conversation with our friends around a baseball game for three and a half hours like we just don't want that we want to see the highlights and then we want to go have our tv dinner crack a beer and go to sleep and get up and go to work the next day (laughs) but like you said with the history if you don't have the the background behind it you can't have the modern day sport so that's right, kind of well, that's kind of nitpicking. It's like, well, if you want the highlights, if you don't have a, all the history that comes before it, you don't you don't have the modern day sport. You don't you you don't yeah. I mean, you wouldn't. You mean you wouldn't be interested in watching the highlights? Well, you wouldn't. Eat, well, if you don't have all those people like the predecessors and the people that came before it to make it what it is, there is that the, the game is, so to speak not what it is today because you wouldn't get the gosh what you coined the the steroid era they would be influenced by people that came before them right no question and and that i think that's that's the challenge of that's i mean that's what we have now we have the game of what it is today because of the past 
I just think it's hard for people to appreciate where the game came from, where it began, and how it is now. I think people just tune into the highlights, like what happened today, not the records that are being broken or what happened in the past or why the, why the players are who they are today doing what they do. Like the guys that break records today are, are, are incredible of what they've done. But think about all the technology we have from, from weight rooms to like these guys have hand-eye coordination. They have vision boards. They have all kinds of new things. They have video that they're watching on pictures. Like the guys and the guys that started baseball, they didn't have that. They didn't have like a perfectly weighted bat. They probably had a, like a crooked bat, and uh, they were going up there and hitting hitting like Ted Williams. He like he had a he had a longer bat. I think he had like a thirty five inch bat where most guys would have thirty three, thirty four, which makes a big difference. And it wouldn't be weighted properly. And he goes out there and hits four hundred or five hundred, and uh, you don't see that today. So even with the technology and all the things that we have, it's. Uh, yeah, they, they really did something important there, I think, that is not recognized today. Do you think it's a bit harder um, when we kind of use, uh, they like to use, especially in the sport and media, uh, people breaking records. Do you think it's harder on the era gone by? And you mentioned it, obviously, they had their disadvantages. Do you think that's harder on them because we've got so much... Uh, influences with technology, advancement with nutrition, you name it, the athlete is already at an advantage straight away in the modern era. Do I think it's harder on the ones that had records? Yes. Well, I think it'd be challenging. I mean, if you had a record that you're holding for for so many years, like what was the record? I think it was when Mark McGuire broke the home run record. I mean, he was a monster, like a monster. Could you imagine walk, seeing that guy walking down the street? And then you have someone, and he broke someone's record that probably never lifted a, day, a weight in his life. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, compare those two. And, I mean, it, it would be challenging. But the game's a bit different now. Like, things have changed. And, I mean, I suppose everything's relevant. Like, maybe the pitchers throw a bit harder today than they used to throw. I mean, you would have a someone like Nolan Ryan. Now he wasn't way bad, but he still threw a hundred miles an hour through the whole game, and he was and he was a phenom at that time. Um, so I think that it, it would be challenging to know that with all these advancements, records are being broken. But the game's different. It's like in the NFL when you see offensive like like quarterbacks breaking records every season, for example. Like, well, they, they don't run the ball as much as they did before. So the game has changed so much, and it's no different with baseball. I think that anyone that has a record, if they say that they don't care that it's been broken, they're probably lying a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but the game has changed so much. It's a much different game today than it was in the past. So it would be challenging to compare the two, even though that it's the same record that's being broken. Do you think with obviously the advancements in well how society has become sport is probably more evolved into uh entertainment more so than sport <laughs> yeah that's a, that's a great question i think that it comes back to like we talked about nfl there for example like safety has got to be a big one like like when I played football, punt return was my thing or kick return. I love doing that. And they basically, be, for safety reasons, they basically take that away from, from people in specialties positions um, for safety purposes. And then, I, but I think for, for baseball as well, like 
they want to speed up the game now because they need to keep the focus of people. So they change things around. And then, I mean, they bring in this review and like the, like the review, like that's not a thing that like people like real, I feel like say don't want to insult anyone, but like real baseball fans, it's part of the game for an umpire to get a call wrong. Like it happens. We don't want a robot there. Like why do we have an umpire then? Just get a robot to call, call balls and strikes. So I think that, it's challenging the way things have changed, and but but maybe they need to to keep the game game going and keep it alive to keep people coming to the stands. But it's definitely more entertainment purposes than than the sport, like you mentioned there for sure. <laughs> but it, when it comes to baseball, how could you shorten it to make it more entertaining? Because, uh, like you said, you went to a game recently. It went to extra innings. You 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 can't tell from day to day how the team is going to perform or how can you kind of manipulate it to make it more entertaining? Well, to make it shorter, they've done, they've done small things like you can't step, you're not supposed to step out of the batter's box or if you step out of the batter's box, you only have a few seconds to get back in. Um, They can't do a whole lot. I mean, if you have an inning where, if you have an inning where a team scores eight runs, well, that inning is going to take 25 minutes. So that's going to be extra time on. So there's not, they can't do things specifically. Like, you guys can only score three one, runs in an inning. I mean, <laughs> it's not even going to be baseball anymore. And I think they would lose fans. So they just, they, I think they do the best that they can to speed it up and to make it a bit, I, don't know, I think they were trying to make it a bit shorter at one point. Um, but then they brought in the review, which would make it longer. So I think they're trying to do the best that they can, but. It's a, it, our society's evolving, and I think I guess the sport's going to have to as well to keep the fan base there. Could you not follow the the, the model that cricket did and have a short of like have a multitude of games? Be it uh, I don't know if you know. You've obviously got your T twenty twenty twenty, which is twenty innings per side, which is a shorter version of the game. Um, one day cricket, and then the normal. Uh, we call it. I, I would say, for my purpose, I don't want to insult anybody, but like the boring cricket, where it's over multiple days. Could they not introduce something like that? Obviously, you have your preseason ball, but make that more competitive uh, from an entertainment standpoint, and make more important on that as well. Yeah, that'd be interesting. I mean, it'd be cool to see something like that, like short. You know, short game. I don't know, maybe like three or four. You'd have to change it quite a bit. And baseball, like the people that are running baseball, are are probably tra- traditionalists deep at heart. I'd imagine they feel like they have to change the game a little bit to keep up with the times. Or like they're they're competing with the NFL, who's always changing and always evolving. They're competing with the NBA, who's usually at the you know usually at the at the top of the list of making better changes for their fan base. Um, and they, that's the, those are the sports that they have to compete with, so they have to make changes as well. But to make a drastic change like that, it's just like, it's the records that 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 athletes are chasing, especially in baseball. It's the numbers, it's the percentages. So to change the game that drastically, just for the fans, it would have to be a whole different league. Kind of like I think they're trying to start up a XFL again. <laughs> so it would have to be something like that, and I don't think that. It would. I don't think it's going to work in football, and I don't think it would work in baseball either. But you, you mentioned the NBA being able to transcend and be like at the forefront of the changes. Do you think it is in a better position to do that because it's more of an international game? I would say they wouldn't be able to do it because there's more history behind 
baseball. Like I don't when I think about basketball, I don't think about who's one of your favorite best. I don't think about like Will Chamberlain as I do when I think about Ty Cobb, for example. Like I personally, and I'm of course I'm I love basketball as well, but I'm swayed towards baseball. But I don't feel like that same history or that same. Um, I'm not quite sure what the word is, but I don't feel like that history is the same in basketball as it is in baseball. But you thought you would do because at the end of the day, the Canadians did invent the sport. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We also, I think we also invented lacrosse as well. But uh, that's not really a, a mainstream sport yet either. <laughs> well, it's, I think, probably more so in North America because of the collegiate system. You never know. if It, it got uh, maybe Olympic status. Who knows? Yeah, you know what? Lacrosse is growing. It's surprising because when I was growing up, it was it, w- it wasn't really a thing. You heard about it. Maybe you saw some old sticks laying around. I actually saw some old sticks laying around in like an old gym, like in the back of the uh, school at the gym or wherever. But now more and more kids are playing it. And I don't know if that's just in Canada or, or in the U.S. or around the world, but where there's all kinds of leagues popping up, and it's actually becoming more popular. So you never know; it could be a it could be a thing. And now, Drew, coming back to obviously your plant-based diet, what what was the kind of the driving factor to releasing the de- de- detoxifying yourself book? It was really my experience of being in a stressful environment on a regular basis, and then transitioning my lifestyle in different ways. And, and stress has a big role in that. And I think we don't realize how stressful our environments are, like. In a workplace, for example, our bosses stress us out. Our coworkers stress us out. There's a lot of different factors where we're stressed out on a regular basis. And then if we don't step away from that, we don't realize how stressed out we are. That becomes our normal. So when I look at the things that stressed me, it was my environment, playing in, playing in such a difficult atmosphere all the time. On a regular basis, there's very few breaks. That's was, that was lifestyle. And then you look at the food we're putting in our body. Does that food stress us out because we're putting like free radicals, for example. We put processed processed food, refined sugar, coloring, toxins, fillers. It's never ending. We continually put these things, food-like substances in our body that harms our body consistently with stress us out on different levels. So when I look at food, I looked at the things that put stress on my body. And for me, like meat, for example, was a difficult one, was a difficult one because it was harder for my body to digest. And we know through research now that like big, big chunks of meat, for example, are very challenging for our body to digest. And if we look at balance, and I'm not a person that says don't eat any meat. I just feel like if we move closer to plant-based, our bodies can digest the foods easier. They can burn it off, turn it into energy at a much higher rate, and we absorb what we should be absorbing instead of storing it in main cases like body fat, for example. So through my studies and research and experimentation on my own body, I moved more and more and more towards a plant-based diet, and that wasn't planned. It was like, this doesn't make me feel good. I'm going to take it out, and I'm going to try more of this. And I tried something else, and that didn't work out for me. So as I moved closer, it just ended up being a plant-based diet. But obviously living in North America, Drew, is that not, well, back in that day, very difficult because it's very, be it, well, if we talk about Texas, for example, it's heavily engrossed around its meat production. 
and, and obviously the consumption of it. How on how how was it to trans to kind of trying to try and yeah transgress <laughs> towards that that change in your diet, be it from people uh, obviously from the outside wanting to and you you touch upon this earlier telling you what to eat. Yeah, it wasn't like. It wasn't so such a challenge when I was doing it for myself. Like when I did it for myself, like say for example, like <laughs> I don't share this story too often because it's gonna sound crazy, but there's this thing I get I call meat feet. <laughs> so when I would have this big piece of steak, for example, I did like my my digestion didn't feel great. Like something in my body just didn't feel great, and my feet would get really hot at night. And I'm like, what is going on? My feet would be on fire. So then I would like, and I'm like, what's, so then a couple months later, I would try another big piece of steak or, and then my, the next night, my feet would be on fire and I started to write a food journal. Like what's going on? So every, and then I I tracked it. That's why I recommend food journals. Like everyone should have a food journal, especially if they have allergies or if they have uh, stomach issues or anything they want to figure out. So, um, it, it, it was like clockwork. Every time I had red meat, my I, I, I didn't sleep very well and my feet were on fire. So I call it meat feet. <laughs> and I imagine the average person thinks I'm a bit a bit crazy to explain it like that. But that's what was happening for me. So I moved away from red meat. So then I went to fish and chicken, for example. And then I would have uh, some shrimp, for example. And then shrimp, shrimp did kind of the same thing. Not meat feet, but I didn't sleep great when I had shrimp. So then I moved away from shrimp. And that's just what happened, but I did that for myself. So it wasn't, it's much different now because we teach this. And I'm in front of a camera, I'm in front of a microphone often. So there's a lot more people that don't like to hear that. They don't believe it. I think the plant based diet is still a bit newer, especially in North America, because as you mentioned before, we grew up with what's for dinner? A roast, right? What's for dinner? Chicken. So when we say we're ha- we're having a plant based meal, I get a lot of blank stares in question marks. People are like, what do you mean? What are you having? Like, you know what I mean? So it's it's very apparent for us in our line of work to tell people you don't need to have meat in every meal for people to be very confused and not really sure what's going on or why would we even recommend that. <laughs> well, I think it comes down to the underlying factor. It's, it's food is getting more and more as you put it, toxifying because we don't know what's in it. Yeah, and that's a problem. And that, That's a problem. We should know what's in our food. We should know where our food comes from. We should have everything labeled, and there's large corporations that are fighting that, that don't want food labeled. We should know if our food is genetically modified or not. We should have that right. And for me, to, to sit back and, and see that happening in our world for people to be like, oh, no, we, we, we don't we, we shouldn't have to label like why not? Like that's our food. We're putting it in our body to survive, to give us energy. We believe food heals, cures and prevents like everything we do is around food based. So if we're using food to keep ourselves alive, why shouldn't we have the right to know what's in our food or where it comes from? So it's bizarre for me to, to even think that people are trying to prevent that. Um, so yeah, absolutely. We need to know where our food comes from and we need to start paying attention to what we're putting in our body because no one else is going to do it for us. But then even if they do label it, it's in, well, for you and I, it's not, uh, foreign language, but for the normal consumer it's as if they're on, they've visited, well, say quote unquote, another planet. 
It's true, and that's where education comes from, and that's where we talk about we think or we teach reading ingredients instead of nutritional value. Like nutritional value is not going to do much for you. If you read the people look at calories, for example, and we don't mention, we don't say don't count calories because it's going to say your nutritional value list is going to say a hundred calories per serving. Then it's going to say uh, two servings per box, <laughs> right? <laughs> so what are you going to eat? One chip? You're not going to eat one chip. You're not going to eat two crackers. You're going to eat that half the bag. So you're going to get 800 calories or whatever it is, but people don't put that together. So we have to stop looking at calories. We have to stop reading the nutritional value. We have to look at ingredients and what exactly is in our food so we know what we're putting in our body. Well, that's a difficult one because I think you've got to be a mathematician, a physician to be able to calculate, like you say, it's better to ignore the calories because they like to be... The, the, the manufacturers now are very manipulative as to how they're going to give you the information. It's going to be very difficult <laughs> to, you've got to kind of get more the calculator out to work out how many calories you are. So I think your way of thinking is probably a better way of going about things. Yeah, I mean, that's what the industry is built around. Like the grocery industry, now the food industry, is built around mass production and shelf life. So they do everything they can to produce a large quantity of whatever they're producing and keep it on the shelf as long as possible. And they do that through low-quality foods, and they do that through preservatives and toxins and colorings and flavorings, these things that we shouldn't be putting in our body. But they want it to look great and sit on the shelf forever because if, if it expires and they have to throw it away, they lose money. They're not, they don't care about our health. So if we start to pay attention to our health as, as well, like every time we go to the grocery store, we vote. I'm sure you heard that before. And we understand that from our standpoint, we had a, have a protein supplement called Complete Truth Protein. That was in a number of retail stores. And we know like, if we have our product in a, in a store on a shelf and people purchase that, then the store orders more product from us as a manufacturer. <clears throat> so we put more product on their shelf. So if a consumer votes, they're taking product off the shelf. They say, I want more of that. And then, and then people put more, and then the grocery stores put more of our product on the shelf. If no one's buying it, sooner or later they're going to take it off the shelf and throw it away and not reorder because people aren't voting for it. So when you go to the grocery store and you vote for Rice Krispies or you vote for Frosted Flakes, I don't know what you guys have, James, but we have Fruit Loops, for example. When you go to the grocery <laughs> store, you're voting for more products like Fruit Loops. Instead of going to the muesli aisle or to the granola and getting some healthier things that are going to improve your health, and then you have more of them in a grocery store instead of having a whole aisle jam-packed with sugar-filled um, cold cereals. I think that's probably one of the worst ones nowadays, Fruit Loops. I think I, 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 if we go back oof, maybe 20 years ago, maybe a little bit older than that, I might have had that. But the product back then to what it is now, the sugar content is probably not the same. <laughs> you know what the thing is? I put up posts on my Facebook page not too long ago asking what people enjoyed. And one of them said that corn pops. Do you have corn pops where you're at? I don't think so. No? Okay. Well, we have something called corn pops, and it used to be called sugar pops. <laughs> and I think the nutritional value is not much different. Regardless, it's not going to be any good for you. But because they wanted to change the name and get away from sugar, all they did was change it to corn pops. It's the same thing. <laughs> But, I mean, that's what they can do. They can do whatever they want. The labeling is so loosely regulated that 
they can manipulate and that's basically their marketing marketing division's job is to mani manipulate in a way so it looks feels and seems healthy for you so you so you buy more of it but then i think like you 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 touched mm -hmm. upon it's educating the people to be able to see through uh how would i put this the blanket being put over pulled over their eyes yeah no question and that and that responsibility has to come back on us and it's more challenging to stand there and read ingredients without question but that's where our society has gone when you go to like back in the day when you used to go to get bread for example you would get bread from your local bakery that had clean ingredients because they were a better quality and they were probably from their own farm or they're probably somewhere from local local ingredients they made that bread themselves and now we have this giant manufacturer who's going to put as many, as many preservatives and toxins in there as possible so the bread never goes bad and so they can ship it across the world. And, but that's what we deal with, those types of products, much different than when we would go pull out potatoes from our own garden or we would go to the local farmer's market where everyone in your community has food to share and you would trade flour for coffee or whatever it may be. But then do you think – with society kind of going uh, more towards, we'll say over in this country, supermarkets and whatnot, obviously be it in the Canada and the US, it's a little bit more difficult because you're going to have to travel further to, to get your, your, your products anyway. Do you think because kind of the rest of the world is caught up with that North American mentality that you need to travel to get your product? and your groceries as opposed to being more close to home and being in the community. Yeah, well I don't think we have to. Like I don't think we have to go to like major grocery store chains. I think that if we pay attention to our farmer, like we most of us know someone who has chickens. Like even in, in a city, like I'm in a, a city in Los Angeles right now, giant city, millions of people, and I go to the local farmers market, it's so amazing here because they have a farmers market every day. When I'm in Canada, we have a farmer's market once a week in our community. And here, I could literally walk to a different farmer's market every day. So you can go and buy local eggs from a local farmer. You can go and buy fresh fruit. Like for five bucks, I can get um, cauliflower, kale, and a bunch of carrots for five bucks. And, th and they're coming here to bring their fresh food that they farm themselves. So for me to be like, and people like, oh, I can't find anything reasonably priced. I can't find anything fresh. And you're going to the wrong places. <laughs> Walk down the street, talk to your farmer, ask him about his animals, ask him about their food, how it was grown, what kind of, uh, if they're using pesticides or herbicides. Talk to them because they're more than happy to give you information about their food. This is food that they've grown, they've put their energy into, they've put their livelihood into this food that they're bringing to us, which is much different than grocery store foods that they're shipping from across the world. We don't know what's how they how they raise them, what's in them, how they produce them, and they could care less about if we're having a conversation with them or not. So for me to go and support a local farmers market, it's no it's no question hands down. We go to the farmers market every chance we get. I think it's better because more than most likely that farmer is not going to use pesticides because they're going to eat that produce themselves as well <laughs> right that's a great point i mean those those people that are in those giant manufacturing types of places like you don't know what they're eating or what they're doing or you it's clear that they don't care what's going on with the food so it's much different when you have someone that's 
brought the food brought the food themselves they're feeding that to themselves and their family so of course they want it to be healthier but do you think obviously with the the ingredients themselves being more heartily it's going to lower your stress levels more so than if we stick along the what is mainstream and kind of go into the grocery store week in week out Consuming the foods or purchasing the foods? I would say a bit of both. Yeah, I think it would lower your stress levels if you're buying. Like for me, I feel like there's energy all around us. And that's the, uh, maybe people would call that the hippie part of me. <laughs> I feel like there's energy all around us. So like within our community, for example, when, when you design a product, you have a product, whether you're growing it yourself, manufacturing it, hand making it, you put all your energy and life into that product. And then you give that, you give that, or you sell that to someone else, and they give you money in return. So that you take that money and you go and buy food, or you go and buy gifts, or, or you buy something different. That's positive energy, and, and positive energy is always circling, it's always moving. So that gives that gives yourself, it gives your friends, family, it gives your community life. And for us to go to the cheapest. IKEA, the cheapest Walmart. When we go and buy these low quality products for as little as possible, there's no life. There's no energy in that. There's no, there's nothing. That, the people at, at those big box stores, they're not going to thank you. They're not going to shake your hand. You're not going to have a, like a, an honest and real conversation with them about how they created their products. So for me, to get on, to, to take it to a deeper level, like I feel like we have energy all around us, and you can surround yourself with positive energy, you can surround yourself with life, or you can look for the cheapest things that are going to break. You throw it in the garbage. It fills out our fills up our oceans. It fills up our landfills. Or you could go and have a conversation with someone that hand created something, pay a little bit more, but you get more out of it, and you give more out of it as well. But if we come back to that that kind of analogy, Drew. With things not lasting, do you think it's a societal change? Because obviously you talk to the older generations, be it in their 50s, 60s, they talk about things were built to last. Obviously, <laughs> we are in kind of the the, 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 the mindset or the cheap, well, like you said, the cheaper it is, it, it's more uh, convenient. Whereas if you, like you, you touch it upon, if we pay a little bit more, you're going to get something that's going to last a bit longer. Yeah, and I think it's a struggle. I think I feel like things are changing, but that might be because of the circles that I surround myself with. But I feel like there's more and more companies that do care. And then those companies are becoming bigger, like companies that care about the environment, companies that care about the consumer. I feel like those companies are getting bigger. But I mean, you still also you also have those big companies that seem like they'll never go away. <laughs> but um, I mean, they continue to grow. So you have that you have those two different sides of people that don't care. Like they don't they don't care about our environment. They don't care about the products that they're buying. They don't care about the person next door. Like they could be supporting a family member or a friend by buying their products. I just think that they don't care, or or they don't have the knowledge to understand that that's not bringing positive life, positive energy, or know that those cheap products that they just throw in the garbage can is going in the landfill, it's going to end up in our ocean, which is a polluting our world. So I think it's, I don't know, I'd like to say it's getting better and there's more companies that are making a difference, but you also have those big titans that, that are just, they, they, they drowned out so much. 
But do you think that kind of way of thinking is more evident in today's world because you are quote-unquote out for yourself, going to try and one-up somebody else because you want to do the best for yourself but also for your family? Well, I think that people... I don't know. I think people struggle with doing <laughs> doing the right thing sometimes. Like if if this is going to keep money in my pocket, if it's going if they're just thinking about themselves, like if I'm going to go buy something cheap, plastic, and not worry about anything else, then that's something that we got to deal with. But I, I want to believe that people are making a change and being more conscious, and that even the younger generations, like as much as they seem to be in their phones and in front of a, a computer and not knowing what's going on around the world, I want to believe that. Even them, because of what's going on in our world and what's happening to our planet, that they're more conscious of making a better decision as well. And my final question for you, Drew, before we wrap up the episode, is if you had to summarize what we've been speaking about today into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? (laughs) Well, I guess summarize an hour in one sentence. (laughs) (laughs) What what can I say? I mean, I suppose if we, I think the bulk of our conversation was probably around living a stressful lifestyle and the environment that I grew up in. And I suppose that I would tell people that you don't have to live a stressful lifestyle. Like there are ways that you can reduce the stress in your life through the foods that you put in your body, through um, being more understanding of your surroundings and making better decisions for yourself and, and for your, your community. I think that if I were to say one thing, it would be like, it would be that we don't have to be stressed out and there are things that we can do to, to reduce the stress in our lives. So once again, Drew, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Game podcast. Yeah, thanks so much, James. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate the conversation and I appreciate your audience as well and getting a chance to talk with them too. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short review as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it will be more visible in future to others and thus helping more people, which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast. Thank <laughs> you.